Heavenly Father, we do adore your holy name. We agree with David's prayer as he magnifies and exalts you, our most holy God. We come here this morning by your grace. This is a a holy convocation, a gathering of your saints to, to worship you by grace in spirit and in truth. And we want to do that this morning, Father. We don't want to be so easily distracted with the things of this world. We don't want to find our minds having difficulty hearing your word read or spoken of. Rather, we want your Holy Spirit to do the work that only He can do. And that has enabled us to worship you rightly. And so I ask that you would be gracious with us. Help us now to hear you speak. Help us now to be forever changed by the gospel of grace. Help us, I pray, Father, to be a people that are set apart to do the work that you have called and equipped us to do. I thank you for the testimony of the Apostle Paul and these men that had been changed by you and now dwell in your presence. They now know how glorious it was to sacrifice and serve for Christ's name. Help us to see that as well, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good morning. I'm very thankful you're here today. If you've been here with us for a while, I, I know what you're thinking. You're saying he doesn't want to leave Colossians, and you're right. I don't. Um, I've, I've often been asked over the years, what was your favorite sermon series? I said, it's whatever one I'm doing at the time. It's whatever one you're steeped in that you're most captivated by. And Colossians, I don't want it to end. I never want it to end. Um, but it's always good because as an expository church where we preach the Word of God, we're going to go to another piece of Scripture. Um, I'm not intentionally delaying the end of Colossians. I have truly been um, in right awe of God's work here with the men that Paul identifies in these last few verses. If you were with us last week, Paul, again, he's writing from a Roman prison and he's ending this glorious letter and he's sending these final greetings, greetings that oftentimes we just brush right by. But he identifies several men, men who were instrumental to the gospel ministry of the Apostle Paul to the Gentiles. And last week we had a chance to, to look at our friend Tychicus, who I now know you know much better. And we know of his sacrifice and his fidelity. We know of his humility. We know that he was a messenger. He took the letter to the Colossians and the Ephesians and to Philemon. And he was an encourager. He came along and he encouraged the church in Colossae. And we said, we want Tychicus's here in this church. And then we had a chance to look at Onesimus, the slave turned Christian who was going to be returned to his master Philemon and what courage it took to return to a state of slavery, what courage it took in light of potential execution. I pray you were rightly awed by the work that God did through those men. We're not elevating any man this morning, but we want to see how the gospel of grace and the power of Christ dwelling in a man and captivating a heart can change us permanently as it did these men. So this morning I, I want to look at a few more members of the Apostle Paul's ministry team. I want to look at a few more men. 
And I want to look at how God used them and unpack some spiritual truths and by God's grace see the courage that they had and encourage us in this process as well. But at the baseline of it, I I want us to see the power of the gospel. I want us to see what happens when a man or a woman has truly surrendered their life to Jesus Christ and lives in accordance with his power. So let's do that this morning. I want to look at a burden bearer. I want to look at a second chancer. I know that's not a word. That's the beautiful thing. You can just make up words. The second chancer, the burden bearer, and lastly, the prayer warrior. Let's look at the burden bearer first. Look at verse 10 with me. Colossians chapter 4, verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. Aristarchus was a fellow Jew, one of three with the Apostle Paul at this time, along with John Mark, who you know, and Jesus, who they called Justice. His name means best ruler, but if I could rename him in the Hebrew, it would be Sabel, because Sabel in the Hebrew is burden bearer, and that's what this man did. We first met him in Acts chapter 19. That's when he's first mentioned. He is with Paul in Ephesus when the silversists cause an uprising, remember? And here is Aristarchus, and he's with Gaius, and they're with Paul, and an uprising takes place, and they're captured, and they're imprisoned along with him. They found out all too well how dangerous it is, dangerous it is to share the gospel with a man like the Apostle Paul when they were seized by this angry crowd. What astonishes me is this did not detour him from the ministry. It just pressed him harder into it. And from this point in Ephesus, as we follow the scripture, scriptural narrative, this man who lived in Thessalonica, like Tychicus, gave up his life, his family, his friends, his church community, and he went from Ephesus to Macedonia, and Macedonia to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem, he followed Paul to Caesarea, and then into Rome, and here he is with him in jail. And look again at verse 8. It says, he is what? A fellow prisoner. I'm sorry, verse 10. A fellow prisoner with the Apostle Paul. And you say, well, how are you going to develop a point on that? Most commentators believe that he did nothing to be in prison. He was just with Paul. That he made a conscious, willful choice to enter prison with the apostle. He chose the lifestyle that God had given to the apostle for the apostle's well-being. And you might be thinking, and this question came up by a young person this week, who in their right mind would do that? I mean, who would give up their freedom? Who would voluntarily go to jail? Who would sit in a cell if they did no crime. Galatians chapter 2, verse 6. Paul said, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will what? You will fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? It is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Was Aristarchus not loving Paul rightly? Was he not loving Paul in accordance with the law of Christ by climbing into the prison with him, by literally walking in Paul's shoes? Not metaphorically. He says, I will go where you go. I will sit where you sit. I will weep where you weep. We know nothing else about this man in Scripture. Nothing. He didn't deliver any great letters like Tychicus. He didn't serve as a missionary. He didn't serve as an interim pastor. But what we do know is glorious. He fulfilled the law of Christ by being a burden bearer. We know he did this as he walked with Paul, lifting Paul up in some of his darkest hours. Now I know in our cultural moment where everything needs to be high profile, 
when being first and being seen and being known is what we advocate as valuable. This type of servant-like burden-bearing is undervalued here, but we need to know it's indispensable in the work of the gospel, and it's indispensable to the church of Jesus Christ. If we are going to magnify the glory of God here in this place, then we must be burden-bearers to one another. We must have a church filled with men and women like Aristarchus. We value those who can speak well. We value those who are well-educated. We value those who have lots of money. God values those who stay the course and follow His Son. God values those who, says, who say, I will give up my own personal freedom to come alongside your servant, the Apostle Paul, to the Gentiles to encourage him and minister to them. Who will love him? Who will pray for him? Who will weep for Paul? Aristarchus will. Aristarchus did. My beloved, all real ministry in the gospel of grace is hard ministry. And if you are engaged in it, then you have suffered, are suffering, or will suffer, and you need an Aristarchus next to you. I would say two or three. Those who will come alongside of you, those who will pray for you, those who will just sit with you and be very quiet, but they will sit with you. They will remind you how dearly you are loved by them and by God. They will tell you, they'll whisper in your ear, keep going, keep fighting. I don't know this man, and I love him, and I can't wait to meet him. Can't wait to sit down in a corner with him and say, tell me, how was it being in prison all these years when you did nothing wrong? Tell me. Glorious. The pragmatist, pragmatist will say, well, what good is that? I mean, shouldn't he have been out? If Paul's in prison, wouldn't it have been better for Aristarchus to go out and share the gospel with the lost? They're in Rome, lots of lost people. I mean, what good does it do to, to sit? Why not, why not have him be productive with his time? And you know that's foolish because you, you are a communal creature created in the image of a communal God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You need people as isolated as you think you can be as much as you think you can go it alone at work, at home, and even in the church, you are in desperate need of real biblical community. And I would argue you need people like Aristarchus in your life. Isn't it easier to go through suffering with someone else? Isn't it easier? I'm always amazed at memorial services or funerals, especially when the turnout is large. And afterwards, in ministering to the family, and they tell me what great comfort they found in people coming to a service. And at first I thought, well, that's, it sounds odd to me that you'd be so encouraged by that. But now I understand all those people come, and all those people support, and all those help carry that burden of the death of that loved one. Glorious when we engage in the work of the burden bearer. We would not get far without the Aristarchuses in our lives. And I praise God for you if you are a burden bearer. I praise God when you do that. The greatest help I've had in my ministry over the years have been those who have just come alongside and said, how can I do it? What can I do? How can I pray for you? How can, can I just sit with you for a while? I mean, you seem like you're imprisoned in your mind, Pastor. Can I just sit with you while you're imprisoned in your own mind? Can I carry a burden? Can I do a little bit of work? Whatever it is, love the burden bear. So we see 
Aristarchus, and we ask Christ to make us like this by His Holy Spirit. There's a second man I want to talk about, and that's the second chancer. That is Mark. Look with me at verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, Paul's telling the church at Colossae, welcome him. Really important words. Now, you know Mark, John Mark, primarily because he is the author of the Gospel of Mark. So we're familiar with him as an author. But we first meet John Mark in the book of Acts, chapter 13. If you remember, in 48 AD, Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch, and they're going to send them out on their first missionary journey. And there's John Mark, young man. They say, take him too. Take him with you. He will do you well. And so Barnabas and Paul and Mark go from Antioch to Seleucia, and they get on a boat, and they sail to Salamis, which is the northern port on the island of Cyprus. And they start preaching and teaching in the synagogues, and they make their way all the way down the island of, of Cyprus until they get to the port of Paphos. And this is what we hear in Acts 13, 13. Listen. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John, Mark, left them and returned to Jerusalem. So while they're on Cyprus, when things are good and they're preaching the gospel, everything's fine, but they get to Perga, and the road going from Perga into Galatia was very dangerous. High potential for thieves or robbers to come and pillage and attack lowly travelers. So Mark's afraid, so Mark goes home. When things were good, Mark would stay the course. When things were difficult, Mark said, I'm out of here, got on a ship, went back to Jerusalem. Fast forward three years to 51 A.D., Paul and Barnabas are again are in Antioch, getting ready for their second missionary journey. And Barnabas wants to take his cousin Mark along with him. Listen to this from Acts 15. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. They're going to do church visits. Fantastic. Verse 37, now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to do the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and he departed. So Paul hears Barnabas say, let's bring Mark, and Paul says, there's no way I'm bringing that guy again. I mean, right when it got really difficult, we turned around, he's on a ship, and he's heading back to Jerusalem. Paul said, I have no reason to trust that he won't do it again when things are hard. I understand Paul's perspective. I get it. It's dangerous. This is life-threatening work. When Mark needed to stay the course, he did not. I am also supreme, supremely glad that God does not do that with us when we need a second chance. I am so thankful that when I screw up and when you screw up, God doesn't turn away and say, go your way. He says, come back in again. Repent and follow me again. And aren't you so glad that God uses people who make mistakes, who mess up, to continue to work in his kingdom? If not for that, we would not be here. None of us would be able to follow Christ and none of us would be able to serve Christ. And Paul and God did that great work in Mark's life. Sometime between 51 A.D. and the writing of this letter, Mark had redeemed himself. Mark had redeemed his relationship with the Apostle Paul. Some people argue that it was Peter 
who was the primary influence in this nine-year period between um, the work of Paul and Mark. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, Peter identifies Mark as his son, not biological but spiritual, and essentially himself as Mark's spiritual father. So a great mentor came into this life. Paul says, I will have none of you. Mark is now rejected, and Peter swoops in. And what better man, I thought, what better man to come along the side of Mark and say, listen, young man, I know exactly how you feel. He said, there was a time in my life when I was in the presence of my Lord and that awful night when he was arrested and he was taken captive and he was brought into the courtyard of Annas and Caiaphas and I looked over at him and I saw him and they were, they were cursing him and they were spitting upon him and they were tearing out his beard and they were hitting him and in the midst of all this, I was asked, do you know him? Do you know him? Do you know him? And all three times I said, I do not know the man. Peter says, I know what it's like to fail. I also know what it's like to be given a second chance. Christ gave Peter a second chance, and what a minister he came to be in the gospel of grace. And so Peter comes along Mark and says, do not give up. God is a God of second chances. Keep working. Keep pressing on. And he did. And so here we find him, not rejected by Paul, but with Paul in Rome in prison. There was complete and total reconciliation. So much so, the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, this is the end of Paul's life, and he's asking Timothy to bring some things with him. And this is what he says in 2 Timothy 4, 11, Get Mark. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is what? Listen to this. He is very useful to me for ministry. Wow, what a turnaround. Paul says there's no way he's going to saying, Get Mark. That man is useful. That man can work. That man can serve. Paul knew well what it was like to have a bad reputation, did he not? The Apostle Paul comes to a saving grace on the road to Damascus. And then, I love it, in Acts chapter 9, God tells Ananias to go fetch Paul on Straight Street, remember? And Ananias says, I imagine in a timid voice, excuse me, Lord, Acts 9, 13, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. Are you sure you have the right guy? Are you sure I should go? Paul had a bad reputation and God gave him a second chance. Paul says to the Colossians, if he comes to you, welcome him. Treat him well. Treat him as a faithful servant. Treat him as someone who has been redeemed because Paul knew what it was like to be treated poorly. And so he says, when he comes to you, have your heart right. Let it be a heart of restoration and a heart of forgiveness. My beloved, I want to ask you right now, how malleable is your heart to those who have wronged you? How malleable is it? How quick are you to give second chances and third chances and fourth chances to those who have vacated their responsibility with you or hurt you? This is so difficult to do. My flesh wants to hold a grudge. If I give someone a second chance, I can't hold the grudge. In order to give someone a second chance, we have to see the holiness of God and the fact that he gave us a second chance and that he does so every moment of every day. My dear brothers and sisters, you could not get through breakfast if God was not 
a God of second and third chances. But he does just that. It's difficult to do because it means that we must open ourselves up to potential hurt again, is it not? And when someone hurts us, or someone doesn't do what we wanted them to do or expected them to do, and, and we push them away, or they leave, and they want to come back in, that means we have to open ourselves up to that same hurt or that same suffering. And yet again, God does that with us each and every day. Every time we sin against God, we grieve the Holy Spirit. And yet every time we repent of that sin and turn back, God receives us in full. Again and again, how many times? An infinite number in our lives. God is not just the giver of second chances. He's the giver of an infinite number of second chances. It's hard because that means we've got to just put our trust in God. Paul and Barnabas continued on. They went up into Galatia, praise God. Mark left them. God covered it. God protected them. And so we can enter back into relationships that are broken when people hurt us because God will cover it. He says, just remain faithful. Just keep walking the walk. Aren't you glad that Mark did? Aren't you glad that he was restored? We would have no gospel of Mark. If 51 AD is the last time we see Mark in Acts chapter 15, there'd be no gospel of Mark. I love the gospel of Mark. I love how short it is. I love how succinct it is. There are little details in Mark that are not in the other gospel accounts. All right, so Paul talks about Aristarchus. He talks about Mark. Look at verse 11. He talks about a man named Jesus. What a name to have. <laughs> what a name to have. In fact, they had to say this is Jesus who is now called Justice because we can't call him Jesus because you'll think we're talking about Jesus. Now look at what he says after this in verse 11. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. This is an extraordinary statement. They're in Rome. They're in Rome. There's a church in Rome. It is believed that there were many Jewish believers in the church in Rome. And Paul says, these are the only three who are by my side, Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus, who they call justice. The church in Rome received the the jewel of the New Testament epistles, the letter of letters that goes to this church. And where is this church when Paul is in a time of need? They are nowhere to be found except for these few men. And that's why he says, they have been a comfort to me. And what a great comfort they must have been. His fellow brethren there with him, Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus, who they called justice. So we see the burden bearer, number one, number two, the second chancer, and let's do our last one, the prayer warrior. The prayer warrior, Epaphras. Look at verse 12 with me. Verse 12, Colossians 4. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and, fi- and fully assured in all the will of God, For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Now, you know Epaphras, if you were here, the very beginning of this series. Epaphras, we believe, was the pastor in Colossae. Many argue that he was the one who founded the church in Colossae. And so you say, well, what's he doing in Rome? Why isn't he with his sheep? Why wasn't he with his people? You know why he went to Rome. The Judaizers and the false teachers and the heretics were trying to get into Colossae and spread false teachings. Remember, we talked about that. And so Epaphras says, I'm going to go and talk to the apostle himself. 
I'm going to get counsel from him. And so he makes the very dangerous journey to Rome out of his love for the sheep in Colossae to seek counsel from the great apostle. While in Rome, notice what he is doing. It's Rome. He doesn't go to sightsee at the Colosseum. He doesn't petition the Apostle Paul, said, why don't you give me a shot at the pulpit in Rome? Maybe I can be the pastor here. I mean, it's Rome. What place would you want to be? He doesn't try to engage in this great missionary effort. Paul says that while there, not sightseeing, not shopping, not looking to become the next leader in Rome, Paul says he is always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Some of your translations might say, always wrestling. That's good too, always contending. The word in the Greek literally means agonizing. In fact, it's in the Greek, the, the word, when you pronounce it in the Greek, it comes from that same uh, sound of agony that we have in the English. In other words, Epaphras wasn't just praying for his church. He agonized on their behalf. He wrestled with God. He contended with God. For what? Look at verse 13. That they may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Epaphras knew something that we forget today. He knew how easy it is for believers in Christ to have false teachings come in and to captivate them and to pull them away so they don't stand mature, so they don't have the full assurance of the will of God. He knows how dangerous it is then and now for false teachings to come in. And so he asked God again and again, day and night, that the church would stand mature. I mean, how, what a prayer. What an imperative prayer for us today. How many false teachings have made their way into the church today? I mean, we have offshoots now. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, even Islam making its way into the church today. And how many pulpits this morning are preaching a gospel message that is not a gospel of Jesus Christ and members of the body of Christ sitting in places and hearing things that are not from God's word. We are so easy to critique, but are we praying? Are we praying for those pastors? Are we praying for those churches that they would stand firm and be fully assured in the will of God, it literally says that they will be complete. Complete in what? Their full assurance is a completion. It's teleos. What will they be complete in? The essence, the foundation of the gospel itself. They will be complete in their understanding of the goodness and the holiness and the justice of this God. They will be complete in their understanding of their total depravity. They will be complete in their understanding that Christ, the Son of God, died, that we might have life in Him. He prayed that they would be complete in knowing that salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone is permanent. Full assurance, if you are in Christ, you cannot be outside of Christ. You cannot be taken outside of Christ. You can't lose Christ because He won't lose you. They wanted full assurance of that. If you're in Christ, then His blood covered your sins. He wanted them to know Doctrinal truth. He wanted their behavior to align itself with the gospel of grace. Epaphras prayed that they would understand that this right, loving relationship we enter into with God through the blood of Jesus Christ is one in Christ that lasts forever. They can't be stolen away. 
Look at verse 13 again. Paul says, For I bear, bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Laodicea and Hierapolis, they were communities and there were churches in each within a 10-mile radius of Colossae. They were neighbors. And Paul is saying, I testify with my eyes. I bear witness that this man, while he was here, prayed and prayed and prayed and did not stop praying for you. I like the Berean Study Bible. It renders it well. Epaphras has gone to great pains for you. Pain. The Greek is literally an intense pain. In other words, my beloved Epaphras was a true pastor. He was a true pastor. He wasn't concerned about how many people he had attending his morning service. He wasn't concerned or fixated on the tithing or how hip he was, or whether or not he was bringing in a a group of young people that could make his church seem more modern. He wasn't concerned about getting on the radio or writing his next book. He was concerned about the well-being of those that God had put under his watch care. And so what did he do? He prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed to the point of pain. He obviously believed Paul and Ephesians 6.12, which I don't think we do. Paul said, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Epaphras said, this battle is going to be won or lost in the spiritual realm, and if I'm not praying, my sheep will lose. And so he prayed. He prayed. He wrestled with God like Jacob wrestled with God in Genesis chapter 32 and says, I will not give up until you bless me. What a glorious prayer. Here are Epaphras in Rome with Paul, and he's saying to God, I will not stop praying until you help my, those sheep under my watch care in Colossae to stand mature, to be complete in the gospel, in their doctrine, in their behavior. I will not stop praying. My beloved, you'd be a fool not to want to have that man as your pastor. You'd be a fool not to go to that church. <laughs> Maybe that'd be a great question for anyone seeking out a church to ask the pastor, how much time do you spend on your knees praying for your people? Because I want you to pray for me. What a great question. I've never been asked that. Not in 20 years I've never been asked that. Laboring in prayer, agonizing in prayer, in pain in prayer, is not the simple prayer before the sermon. It's not the simple prayer before the meal. It is coming before a thrice holy God on broken knee and with humble heart and saying, I cannot, we cannot, unless you supernaturally intervene, saving souls, securing salvation, making sure that we remain steadfast in the church. This man knew how limited he was as a pastor. I'm sure he faithfully proclaimed the gospel. I'm sure he taught those that were underneath him. I'm sure that he ministered to their needs. But he understood he could do nothing unless God did it for him. This prayer is like our Lord's prayer in the garden. Same terminology used. Painful prayer. Agonizing prayer. You remember in the garden, our Lord asked the Father, is there another way? Is there any other way that we can build this church? 
Is there any other way that souls can be saved other than my going to the cross? And then it says, Luke records this, Luke twenty two forty four. And being in agony, same word, Jesus prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. I don't know what to do with this type of prayer. I'm humbled by it. I'm ashamed by it. It should humble us all. Because I don't know that we pray like this. And yet this is the type of prayer that we're called to. Not just pastors, but brothers and sisters. You are to pray for one another that we might stand mature. You are to pray for one another that we might have full assurance of the gospel of grace. So he commits himself to this prayer, Epaphras does, for the brilliance of the bride, for the magnification of the glory of Jesus Christ. I loved how John Owen, since we talked about the Puritans this morning, John Owen, listen to this, speaking of pastors. A minister may fill his pews, his communion role, the mouths of the public, but what that minister is on his knees in secret before God Almighty, that he is and no more. When we pray, I think that we just give up too easily, don't we? I know I do. When you're ministering to someone and things aren't going as you want it to go and you're struggling with them and and you're trying to help them and you're trying to care for them and they just continue to go down the wrong path, how easy we are to be like the Apostle Paul and say, enough, enough, I've tried. Let me ask you, in the midst of your ministry, are you on your knees like Epaphras praying for them? Are you agonizing for them? Are you in intense pain for them day after day? Are you? Because if you're not, my beloved, and I'm not saying don't minister and don't counsel and don't encourage and don't be the burden bearer, but if you have grand expectations for people in your life to be changed by Christ, we must be praying for ourselves, for one another, for this church. I hear us talk about revival And I hear us talk about the gospel going out and many being saved. But if we are not praying, we are fools. And I say that in love. Epaphras was not satisfied with the church being fine. He was not satisfied with people coming. Remember, the heresies hadn't gotten in yet. The Judaizers hadn't made their mark. Things were still okay in the church. But he wasn't satisfied with that. He wanted them to be secure in their faith so secure, so sound in their understanding of the gospel and the doctrines of Christ that they could not be moved by these Judaizers and these heresies. What a love this man had for the church. What a love. My beloved, we gather on Wednesday nights and it's a glorious time and we pray together. And I hear some of your prayers. They're all glorious to God. But I do think we, be, we would do very well if we didn't pray so much for the tendonitis and the arthritis, if we didn't pray so much for the loneliness and wanting a spouse or the economic struggle and the wanting of a job, those are all glorious things and they all should be prayed for. But if they're prayed at the expense of what prayers Epaphras lifts up, that we together would stand firm in the Lord, that we together would live holy lives for Christ, that we together as a church would have an indelible mark on this community for the gospel of grace. Those are prayers we need to pray over and over and over. And then you can pray for your tendonitis and you can pray for your arthritis. 
my friends, tendonitis may be painful, but an eternity in hell is worse. Being lonely because you do not have a spouse on earth is difficult, but being separated from God for an eternity is worse. Let's try to realign our prayers by God's grace. Now, when I look at these men, when I look at Aristarchus the burden bearer, and I, I look at John Mark, the one who was given a second chance, and I, and I look here at Epaphras and this man who intercedes, I am so thankful that Christ is that for us and infinitely more. Jesus Christ, he interceded for us and he intercedes for us. He is the consummate Epaphras. He is the ultimate pastor. Aren't you thankful that upon the cross, Jesus did not say, Father, forgive them and cure their tendonitis. Father, forgive them and, and find them spouses, husbands and wives. He did not say that, did he? He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He prayed for salvation. He prayed for sanctification. And according to the Bible, Romans 8, 34, it says, Paul said, Christ who died, more than that, he who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is what? Also interceding for us at this moment. If we can't get through breakfast without God giving, getting a second chance, we can't get out of bed unless Jesus Christ is interceding for us that morning, this moment, and he does, and he will. I'm so thankful that our Lord is the ultimate intercessor. I'm so thankful that God, through Jesus Christ, gives us second chances. Before we're saved, before God comes into your life, we all have the same resume as a John Mark. You know that. We all have turned away from God. Each of us, gone astray, turned to his own way, according to Romans chapter 3. We do everything before Christ in what is our own best interest or what we think to be our own best interest. We don't live for God. We don't live for His glory. We don't worship Christ, our Creator. In fact, we saw earlier in Colossians 2.13, Paul said, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. I would say that's blowing it. Would you not? You say, what was I before Christ? I was dead in the uncircumcision of my flesh. I was a rebel, rebel. I was in sin. I hated God. That's not right. And what does God do? God made you alive with Christ, forgiving you of all your sins. That is the ultimate second chance, is it not? The greatest second chance that is offered to us by the living God is salvation in Jesus Christ. And so Christ comes along as the second chance giver and the third chance giver. He intercedes for us. He gives us a second chance. And, of course, he is the eternal Aristarchus because he bore our burdens. He bore our burdens upon the cross that our sins might be forgiven completely. I love in Matthew eleven twenty eight. I had this read as an opening. Jesus said, come to me all who are weary, and the NIV says, and burdened. And he says, and I will what? I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest. The greatest burden that we carried, like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, the sins that we have committed against a holy God. 
So God sends Jesus Christ to earth as a man, and Christ says, I will bear your ultimate burden. I will take from you the consequence that you rightly deserved, which is an eternity in hell, that you might have life now and for eternity. And so Christ bore our burdens that we might what? That we might be so changed by the gospel of grace and the radical love of Jesus Christ that we will go out and we will be little mini burden bearers. You're going to come alongside brothers and sisters and friends and family and your coworkers, and you'll come alongside them and you will lift them up. You will struggle with them and you will agonize with them. You will pray for them as Epaphras prayed for his church. When you come to know Jesus Christ like this, my beloved, when you come to see Christ as your burden bearer, as your second chance giver, as the one who intercedes before God that you might be redeemed, when you see him like this, your heart cannot be ultimately captivated by him. He'll become so radiant and so beautiful and so glorious to you, you will say, I must follow him. And you will. And you will walk out. And you will live as an Aristarchus. You'll be a burden bearer. You'll live as a second chance giver. You won't hold grudges. You'll let people back in. And you will intercede. You will intercede upon the behalf of your brothers and sisters. You will agonize in pain that they might be well. And you will do that because of Christ. You will find that your hearts, captivated by him, will lead, live, lead to this type of life. I don't know these men personally, but I love them. I can't wait to meet them. I pray that we as a church in our ministry here in Cambrian Park will be a people like this, changed by the gospel of grace, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and doing this great ministry work that we're called to do. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I, I testify along with my brothers and sisters that I, I have not prayed like Epaphras. I have prayed, and you know I have, but I have not prayed like this man. Father, I, change that. Change that in my life. Change that in the life of this church. Make us a people who are completely and totally dependent upon you. Your grace, your power to change. I don't want to bear anybody else's burdens. I can barely carry my own. Change that in our hearts, Father. That we might want to bear the burdens of our brothers and sisters. Lord, you are so good and gracious. You came and did a work that is truly unthinkable. Fill our hearts with a gratitude and love that compel us into this same ministry. It is a ministry of dying to ourselves. It is a ministry filled with the love of the Holy Spirit. It is a ministry that puts others above ourselves. We don't want to just read about men like Aristarchus and Mark and Epaphras. We want to be men and women in your church so transformed by the gospel that we live similar lives. And so we ask, Lord, that you would do that for your own glory. Do that here in 
Cambrian Park in Cambrian Park Baptist Church magnify your name through our labor. We ask that you would do all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.